0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host Jasper at jasper on Twitter and today I'm delighted to be joined by
1: Hi, I'm Florence Sutcliffe Braithwaite. Um, I, uh, I work in the history department at University College London and I'm also one of the co-editors of Renewal, uh, which is a journal of social democracy uh, which has been going since 1993 um, and you can find us at Renewal Journal.
0: Excellent. I didn't realise it had been going for that long. I thought, for some reason I had in my head that it was a recent thing, but goodness me, that's been going on for a long time.
1: No. Yeah. (laughs) Plugging away. (laughs)
0: Um, So today we're going to be talking about renewal, actually, and um, yeah, your your article in the recent journal about um, how this is not the end of ideology in relation to the coronavirus crisis and the government's handling of it, despite some of their rhetoric. So would you just be able to give a sort of general Mm -hmm. explanation of what your argument is um, about how this isn't the end of ideology
1: yeah so um, I was really struck by as I think a lot of people were uh, this claim that uh, Rishi Sunak made in parliament and um, that this was um, not the time for ideology and orthodoxy um, when he was sort of introducing some of the earliest sort of um, government interventions to try and, and sort of um save the economy or at least put the the economy on ice in order to sort of reanimate it later um when the when the acute crisis had passed so he made the statement on the 17th of march um, that this was not the time for for ideology and and subsequently you know many of the big things that the that the government has done do sort of superficially seem to suggest a new approach uh, a kind of um an approach that certainly moves away from some of the orthodoxies that were really uh, put in place in the Thatcher years, um, particularly sort of low government spending, um, the sort of uh, ever-increasing limits placed um, on, on the sort of social security benefits that people can, can um, claim, uh, the sort of apparent desire... Uh, that the government should intervene in the economy as, as little as possible. So obviously, the government has intervened in the economy a huge amount. Um, the coronavirus jobs retention scheme is just um, one of the, the biggest of the ways in which it, it has done that. Um, you know, It's also, for example, in, introduced some very small increases um, to universal credit. Um, it's deferred certain types of tax. Um, it's supported the incomes of um, self-employed people in various ways. So uh, it seems like maybe um, this marks something of a shift uh, for for the Tory party. Uh, but actually, I think when we look just a very small amount beneath the surface, it becomes clear that that is, I think, not really true at all. Um, the old ways of thinking about the economy that have, have sort of animated the Conservative Party for a long time, since Margaret Thatcher at least, uh, are still very much there. Um to take just one kind of big way that that is true uh, to start with, what the government has been trying to do is to sort of freeze the economy, to support the economy through supporting already existing jobs in order that it can be sort of revived uh, uh, later. Now, the obvious problem with this is that I think pretty much everyone on the left knows very well that our economy is not working and has not been working for, for really a very long time. Um, you know, even on the uh, the favoured measure of, of the sort of orthodox economists of recent decades, that is GDP growth, uh, our economy has not been doing that well. Once you start to look at, for example, um, whether real wages have been, been rising for the majority of people, you know, in, They have not been rising for a long time. And that is a a really clear sign that our economy has not been working. And the the government's desire to simply sort of freeze the economy and try to bring bring it back in exactly the same way uh, in the future is really clear evidence of the fact that they have not grasped um, the scale of the the problems with our, our economy. They also kind of trade on uh, the distinction between the, the deserving and the undeserving poor that's been a really long, long-standing part of, of sort of Tory and particularly Thatcherite, but also um, longer-standing Tory ways of thinking about um, poor people, um, dividing dividing the poor into supposed deserving and undeserving groups and really trying to kind of punish those people they see as undeserving. You can still see that really clearly there, Um and you can also see the uh, sort of belief that um, it's it's kind of entrepreneurs and, and uh, business people who who really create wealth in our economy. Um, you can see that running through um, what the government has done in in the crisis. And again, you know that fundamentally misses out the fact that it is the work of everyone who's involved in the economy that that creates. Wealth that creates value. So all these kind of old Tory ways of thinking about the economy, of thinking about what what is even valuable, are still really fundamentally animating um, Tory party policy in this crisis. Um, that's not to say that uh, they haven't done some things which have been incredibly good and useful and important, you know, without the, the coronavirus jobs retention scheme. A lot of people would be in um really really terrible situation right now, but I don't think that we should let that blind us to the fact that I don't think that the Tory party has has really changed that much
0: mm. it's it's really interesting, and i have I have a bunch of questions, so I'm gonna try and um water them down and order them in some sense but um but but first, I just thought if we could go back a bit so you talked about the narrative of the deserving and the undeserving poor and how long that has animated the conservative party and as a historian i was just wondering is there like what is the sort of lineage of that idea within the conservative party because it because it predates Thatcherism right
1: yeah absolutely um i mean you i think you can really see this um very strongly if you go right back to the the early 19th century <laughs> uh as a historian obviously i I do like to go back a long way Mm -hmm. um so particularly in the debates around the new poor law um in the early 19th century you saw that this was a point in time where um there was a lot of anxiety uh about industrialization urbanization um whether the population was going to grow to a to a um a level that was unsustainable Mm. um, and whether growing populations would uh, sort of foment um, unrest or even kind of revolution. So this was a point where elites basically were very worried about what was going on and particularly were worried that uh, previous methods of kind of um, delivering welfare, what we would now kind of think of as uh, welfare, were really encouraging um, working-class people to have too many children Mm. uh, because they were supposedly too generous. And so the idea of the new Poor Law was to... Well, one of the key things that it did was to introduce this principle of less eligibility, uh, which um, basically meant um, that being on welfare, being in receipt of um, support from the parish, from the local kind of... Authority uh, should always be less attractive as an option than working, which you know, <laughs> obviously means that um, the support that you were able to receive was going to be very, very limited mm. um, and was going to be delivered in ways that were very unattractive. Um, and you know, probably the, the easiest way of conjuring up what that actually looked like is just to think of um, Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist. Mm. That kind of picture of the workhouse uh, that he paints. Because the workhouse, you know, where families are split up, people were forced to wear uniforms kind of de- dehumanized, and they had the individuality kind of stripped away, their families literally broken up, forced to work for uh work incredibly hard, uh, very small amount of food. That that is the principle of, of less eligibility put into um put into practice. And that's the kind of, um, you can see there how um, the idea that some poor people are undeserving and will will take whatever they can get and will not work unless you really force them to, you can see how that influenced that policy.
0: And um, st- sort of staying on this, um, on the sort of line with regard to unemployment specifically. So something which... Um, I've been thinking about was whether whether the current crisis is unique with regards to the scale of unemployment because there's so much discussion about how this is going to be the worst recession in you know centuries um, and. Um, you know, unemployment is starkly rising already. And, you know, you, you've you already compared, um, you know, like the furlough and universal credit um, and mentioned the article was like, how how can the government justify paying one group of people up to £2,500 a month while they're not working, while another group gets £342.74 a month um, on universal credit, which is obviously, you know, sort of logical fallacy, it doesn't make any sense, um, except and that narrative of the deserving and the undeserving poor but have there been any previous instances in the 20th century or prior where unemployment was at such a high level that those narratives did become sort of unsustainable because you couldn't because the because the unemployment the unemployed encompassed so many different people and it was so high basically or is this a more is this very much a new phenomenon
1: yeah, that's a good question. Um and at this point I think it's it's I suppose it's hard to say mm. yet. Um I mean there have been particular particular moments of of incredibly high unemployment in the past, um the the middle of the Thatcher period, mm. uh there were over three million people unemployed. Um and then obviously if you go back to um the hungry thirties, there was a really high level of unemployment. Then, um, And in, in both of those uh, times as well, this, um, this wasn't evenly distributed across the country. So um, it was in both of those moments in time, um, there were particular, mainly industrial areas that were really um, the most badly hit.
2: Hmm.
1: That, that kind of may be different this time. There may be a different kind of spatial pattern um, to unemployment. Um and of course Britain now is, is a much less heavily um industrial country mm. than it was. Um, you know, the nineteen eighties, that period of unemployment was the period where where that really kind of changed quite suddenly for Britain, where industrial de industrialization suddenly, you know, really kind of accelerated. Um whether whether it would be worse than Either of those periods is is kind of yet to be seen, but it definitely seems like a real possibility that that it could be even worse. Mm. Um, and I think one thing that has become really clear in in recent years is that um, when people who are relatively well off mm. are when their incomes increase, they don't spend that money mainly on things that actually help to get the economy moving, essentially you know, right at the top of the income distribution and the wealth distribution, people essentially put put extra money, they get into assets and the inflation of asset prices is, has been a huge problem mm. for the British economy, for the global economy. So what really needs to happen, and, th- you know, this is not just the case because I think it would be better if we lived in a more equitable society. It's also the case simply because sort of simply for practical reasons, we need to be redistributing income to people in the middle of the income distribution and at the bottom of the income distribution because those people not only do they need that money more, they will mm. also spend it on things that will get the economy in their local area moving. They will create a kind of multiplier effect. They are not just going to invest in assets, pushing asset prices up, making for example housing even more unaffordable for the majority of people. Mm. So the the kind of the solution to our problems really has to be a, a kind of socialist one. Unfortunately, that's absolutely not the the line that the the government wants to take. Obviously, mm.
0: I completely agree with what you just said and about how um, there needs to be the situation necessitates a more equitable and socialist response um, to to the, this unique economic crisis. And I wonder if I wonder if that actually links with what rishi sunak said about this not being the time for ideology ideology and orthodoxy how when it comes to the government having to implement you know as as he said in the speech policies which would have been unthinkable even just a couple of weeks prior about you know the scale of state intervention in the economy and the furlough scheme um and you know meal vouchers in august um and that kind of thing um how when it comes to that that when it comes to state intervention that that becomes non-ideological almost as a way to sort of like separate the conservative party from these actions in a way almost as in a way to say oh well this this is as as a way to maybe try and disown it from their continued core philosophy i don't know yeah they're kind
1: of trying to put put distance between what they're doing and and sort of um the sort of principled arguments that might be made for doing these kinds of things um, by the Labour Party, by people on the left, they're kind of they're trying to, um, yeah, delegitimise de- those mm. arguments.
0: Mm. Which which is in itself sort of very strange because they're nonetheless, you know, Doing these things and saying that it's necessary, so there is still the sort of like yeah. tension there. But that you know, it's it's nonetheless the points that they're trying to make. um And I, I think something which I've been very interested in throughout this crisis is what gets deemed political and what gets deemed ideological and what is non-political and non-ideological. So, I mean, that's very much animated the Labour Party's response to this of trying to be, you know, the sort of constructive opposition style of trying to be. Idea to this sort of the public wanting unity from their politicians in this time which you know i think is a you know it makes sense as an approach but it is nonetheless intriguing what people think is political and what people think is not i mean just a sort of besides this example the other thing that comes to mind is um i mean this is which is a very specific thing but when the Dominic cummings crisis was going on i remember suella um braverman the attorney general said that crit- criticized labor and, and opposition politicians for trying to make the dominic cri- cummings crisis into a political crisis and saying like, oh this is a this was a personal private matter and it's like well hang on in what sense is this not a political um act with the prime minister's chief of staff breaking the law breaking mandated um a mandated policy by the government that he in part effectively leads but it was deemed a non-political crisis so again again as a historian I was wondering what what is the sort of history of things being deemed political and things being deemed non-political what what is it that always gets deemed non-political and what becomes political how how does that how has that Mm. traditionally worked
1: well kind of unfortunately for the left um looking at the history of kind of 20th century Britain what you see is that it is the the Tory Party that has been the most successful, really consistently in in sort of defining um, core elements of of its ideology as yeah common sense as therefore not even ideology. Mm. Um, in fact, there's a kind of there's almost a kind of idea that some people have that the Conservative Party doesn't even have an ideology that that in fact the the Tory Party is not interested in ideas. Um, that's just interested in governing, in in kind of mm. strategizing to kind of win and and wield power, um, and you know there are there are some people who would kind of say, oh well, you know you kind of do an intellectual history of the, the Tory Party because they don't have ideas that don't have an ideology. And that, that is absolutely not true. But in fact, that's mm. that's such a, a kind of brilliant um, part of, a, of your political strategy to to, to sort of mm. cultivate the idea that you don't have a, a sort of ideology. Um, you know, one of the ways in which mm. Margaret Thatcher was criticised within her own party by the people who she, you know, defined as wets um, was on the grounds that she was an mm, ideologue sure. and that this was alien to the Tory Party tradition, because she was interested in uh, mm. Hayek and Friedman and those those kinds of um, political economists, those kinds of theorists. So it's um, it's it's such a, a clever move to present yourself as as unideological, um, and it is the Tory Party that has mm. been incredibly successful in in sort of presenting its ideas as common sense. This is really clearly the case. Um, in the interwar period, a period where the Tory Party was really, really electorally dominant. Um the Tory Party was sort mm. of uh in power in, in coalition or or governing on its own for you know pretty much the whole of the interwar period. And mm. the party was incredibly successful in defining socialism as an ideology in that period. Um, and Mm-mm. defining it as a, an alien, external ideology. Um, mm. So, you know, for example, associating socialism with Bolshevism with the kind of Russian Revolution, and associating that with the mm. Labour Party uh, to sort of make it seem like the Labour Party was not um, just not fit to govern. Uh, the mm. Tory Party, on the other hand, was, was supposed to kind of um, embody just quintessentially British, or often, really, there's a bit of a slippage there, and kind of what they're more talking about is what are constructed as particularly English sort of values hmm. and, and and ideas. Um, one of the um, main people who's written about this is the historian Ross McKibben, whose whose stuff about and um, the interwar Tory Party is is really brilliant, and there are there are lots of other historians who've who've also looked at this this kind
0: of thing and to what to what extent do you think the reason the conservative party has been able to benefit from that sense of being not not ideological in the past and also present is is a sort of structural thing with a relation to how sort of their sort of governing philosophies of socialism um on the left and then sort of free market capitalism or at least just capitalism um within the conservative party um does that because capitalism is hegemonic and because it it is it has been the dominant sort of socioeconomic system for centuries now um as well as since the sort of um 19th century the the concept of the nation-state um and the Conservative Party attach themselves to those principles, so that is the status quo. is that how it has allowed itself to paint itself as oh we' you know we're the party of common sense, we're non ideological, whereas socialism is about changing the status quo so does does that do you think that factors into how yeah how those structures of ideology non ideology
1: yeah, function? I think absolutely, absolutely um,
2: mm.
1: and I think it's really important to kind of um really pick apart. How is that um, the right, you know, the, the conservatives, but also I think, you know, we have to sort of um think about the way that this is is also something that we see um you know in the press as well.
2: Mm.
1: They not only um they not only define their politics as common sense, they they sort of they define the common sense of what particular key words mean in a way mm. that that renders it kind of invisible or kind of hard for mm. us to see. So, for example, um, most of us, when we kind of think about, well, what, what, what does capitalism mean? We now would think, oh, well, capitalism means, you know, markets, means free markets. Um, mm. That's actually really, really untrue,
2: mm.
1: or at least very problematic. There are plenty of traditions, for example, of uh, market socialism. Mm. Markets and socialism do not have to be uh, opposed to each other at all and you know in fact some of i think the most interesting kind of um economic thinking going on at the moment absolutely doesn't reject markets wholesale just talks about how they can be um restructured so that they work better for everyone rather than you know favoring those with more power so that that association between capitalism and markets um Really works to the detriment of of anyone kind of trying to think of or or, or sort of promote socialist or social democratic economics or political economy, mm. because most people think, oh well, you know, markets. That you know, how, how could we live in a society without markets? And, and surely, you know, markets are how we all get to sort of choose what we want. You know, we mm. go to the market, we have choice. We don't, we're not getting told what we need to buy. So, markets are sort of um, defined as. And widely seen as quite good and then you know the right has has really managed to articulate these concepts together so that capitalism means markets and, and socialism or social democracy maybe are, are less uh, less keen on markets or want to nationalize mm. or whatever and that doesn't have to be true and and really works in the favor of a kind of right-wing view of the world and against a sort of left-wing view of the world so there's mm. this common sense gets kind of um It defines all sorts of different things in ways that are beneficial for the right and less beneficial for the for the left
2: Mm.
0: yeah that's really interesting um and as you were speaking i was just thinking about how um you know economies evolved from markets pretty much like you know markets existed in the ancient world which were you know we, we couldn't really retrospectively consider to be capitalist and um a book i just finished reading i just finished reading the um sort of looking looking at in, in america i just finished reading the alexander hamilton biography the one that the musical is based on the massive ron Chernow um book and it, something which it goes into a lot of detail about is the sort of ideological conflict between um hamilton's philosophy of oh you know we do need capitalism we need like a strong centralized government and we if it's more much more resemblant of what we consider today to be um sort of free market capitalism i suppose and then you had the thomas jefferson and the republican party um preferring very much like, sort of a like localized agrarian uh, slave owning of course um economy which was you know completely foreign to well, any any sort of modern doctrine is effectively a, a dead doctrine but um just just listening listening to you speaking there there is also that that is an example of a conservatism which is sort of divorced from economics and to what extent do you think that the the makeup of the current conservative party is based more on social conservatism um and cultural conservatism than those traditions of economics and conservatism or do you think it's still do you think it's still the economic orthodoxy which dominates over um the social side of things and i and of course they are interlinked but yeah what do you think yeah
1: good question i I think that the i think the tory party is is sort of trying to kind of reinvent its image as a party that is uh that is focused more around sort of um cultural and social issues um Mm. Actually, you sort of saw this happening a bit under Theresa May as well, and Boris Johnson has done it yeah. a little bit too, starting to sort of talk about the working class um, and uh, talking about um, what often gets kind of described in the media as supposedly left-behind places, Yeah, trying to t- trying to sort of say that the Tory party has, has something, um, has an agenda that is going to improve places that were really hollowed out by... By deindustrialization, particularly in the eighties, mm. um, and a lot of that is um, is really about a, a, a kind of cultural appeal. They sort of the party is also suggesting that they have certain um, kind of um, actual policies that are going to kind of improve the the sort of um, economic lives of deindustrialised places, um, mm. but they're pretty they're pretty rubbish, um, to be honest. Um, so, you know, for example, big infrastructure projects um, or big transport projects, uh, which, you know, f- fine, will create some jobs, but, you know, the Tory party has nothing to say about the the kind of privatization, the the sort of um, decimation of of the uh, the buses that actually way more people rely on than, um, you know, want to use or uh, a you know really fast train between London and Birmingham. Mm. Um, so the the kind of policies that that the Tory Party um, actually have to try and to try and address some of these issues are really really minor, absolutely just not really up to the task of of fixing uh, a political economy that has been yeah you know, really really broken for many decades, um, mm. and that is why I think that they are trying to kind of turn attention to cultural issues um because that's that is the ground on which they succeed and thrive that is the ground on which they can win um Mm. they i really don't think that the tories um could you know win in a, a kind of straight fight between who's got the best economic policies to try and rebalance our economy try and make sure that All around the country, prosperity is kind of shared out that there are decent jobs, that there are thriving industries, that there are nice high streets in every place in our country. The Tories just do not have the policies that would go anywhere to trying to achieve that. So they want to fight on turf that they know is um, beneficial to them. That is much more difficult for the left, for the Labour Party to sort of engage with. Um mm. you know that's that's why the Tories are trying to stoke up a kind of culture war because they think that they can win it because it's really divisive and the Tory party benefits from division whereas labor benefits from a country that has sort of pulled together a country that is less divided mm. um that's i think that's kind of one of the things that you know maybe we should should sort of take away from the second world war Britain was mm. a united country with a sense that we wanted to do something together as a country to make things better for everyone and you know labor won that election so i think that's something to take Mm. away from that
2: Mm.
0: yeah and and sort of the both interesting but also frustrating thing about this crisis is that it is sort of the coronavirus that is is sort of creating that sense of national unity i mean the most recent poll um uh regarding what sort of what sort of life the general public wants i think it was as little as like seven percent of people were happy to go back to the way things used to be it might have been 12 percent. i can't quite remember um and yeah as, as as you said the the you know that that in the second world war resulted in general election and then labor winning but we just have the general election and the next one isn't for another four years and we've got no idea what will happen between now and then we might have another pandemic who knows um <laughs> god forbid um but do you Think that the dynamics now, the political dynamic dynamics, are uh, sufficiently different to mean that it's not. it's it's possible that Labour won't be the beneficiary this time around because there isn't an election for several years, and because the party in government, the Conservative Party, are trying to fashion themselves as a more interventionist um, party of change. I I think. I I to my to my to my great fate I remember I I I thought that Labour were going to win in twenty nineteen. I remain I remained dogged in this until the very end, despite um all of my friends telling me that I was one hundred percent going to be proven wrong and I was indeed proven wrong, of course, <laughs> and they were right. Um because I didn't think that the Boris Johnson project of trying to make the Conservative Party seem new under him, even though they'd been in power for nine years at this point would work and of course it did work um so do you think that labor could still be the beneficiary is there still that opportunity or could the goods from this still end up going towards the conservatives
1: Mm. i guess
0: sort of depressing question yeah it's
1: depressing (laughs) um i mean i think there's still a long time to go and it may seem like a bit of a a kind of cop-out answer but obviously there's still time for it to go either way. Mm. I, I, I do also think it's um one of the things that I take away from looking at political history is that there is often, you know, a big element of um things are often very indeterminate. Um and we look back and think that they were they were they were always gonna happen that way. Um mm. you know, a classic example is Think about what would have happened if Jim Callaghan had had gone to the country and called a general election before the Winter of Discontent, instead of after the Winter of Discontent, um, sure. In in seventy nine, would the would the outcome have been different, um, and and would that have put Britain onto quite a different track? Um, mm. You know, it wouldn't necessarily be the case that that none of the sort of um, changes that we associate with the Thatcher years would have come to pass. But for example, uh, Labour might have. Moved down the path of su- selling off a lot more council houses, but would almost certainly have said that the money um, that was um, the money that came into local authorities' coffers through through doing that should be spent on building further social housing. We mm. could be in a really really different situation, um, even even if the Labour Party had uh, you know, intensified what was already um, a, the policy of many Labour um, Labour-controlled local authorities, even before 1979, of of selling some council houses to their tenants. So, you know, things things in politics can shift very quickly. I suppose is mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Um and things that seem inevitable um really rarely were so inevitable. Mm-hmm. So I do think that um there's kind of there's so much for the Labour Party to to kind of play for and I suppose one thing that it's I think is important that that the left does is is to kind of um take control of, try and take some leadership of saying what the future should look like. Because there are pretty, there's a, you know, a majority of people in this country want things to be different, want to come out Mm. of this crisis differently. But it takes political leadership to determine what that is. You know, in the Second World War... You shouldn't have people around the country kind of saying to each other, Oh, should we you know should we have a welfare state? You had a, a report, the beverage report, not actually written by a, a Labour Party um politician, written by a Liberal politician, but yeah. taken up by the Labour Party. It was the Labour Party that said this is one part of the, the way in which we want to build they call it the people's peace after the People's War. That seemed to speak to people. It you know, you require not only people desiring change but also someone setting out a vision of what that's going to look like setting out a kind of convincing vision of what that's going to look like so I think Mm. we really need to see the left showing that leadership
0: yeah and that's really interesting and on that idea of the left taking ownership of things and showing leadership something which something which I think about probably on a near daily basis is how in a sense that is that is what happened over the past couple of years you had a labor party under Jeremy Corbyn who was strident in um the principles and the sort of policies and ideas which now animate the discourse and political discussion about being anti austerity and being interventionist and investing and um what well, you know everything that's happened since 2015 when he won um and of course it, 2017 the Labour Party got very close to forming a government. It was fewer than a million votes away from winning um, a majority of votes. Um, obviously, that didn't last the 2019. Um, but what has happened is the Labour Party put forward those ideas and took ownership of those ideas. Um, the public liked it in one election, didn't like it in another election. And now what's happened is the Labour Party is out of power again and um, for another four years um but instead the conservative party under boris johnson has been able to say oh well we quite like interventionism now and we quite like investment and we quite like infrastructure projects and we quite like um trying to help left behind people um and trying to ride that wave of popular discontent at the sort of past world of austerity and and try and create something new now you know i i I don't have a lot of faith that the party will, the Conservative Party, that is, that will deliver that. Um, you know, as as you mentioned earlier, with regards to what kind of infrastructure projects they're pursuing and how it'd be much better off if they spend the money on buses. Um, and of course, I have severe reservations about the on, on the basic competence of the government to actually initiate any of these policies. But I guess what is just very frustrating is that that sense of leadership and ownership was happening. And then the sort of the, the 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 ultimate result was the Labour Party still out of power. So turning back the clock again to Labour's election victories in the 20th century, so 1945, um, the 1960s and 70s under Harold Wilson, and then 1997 and onwards with Tony Blair. Um, how much did that sense of sort of competence uh and you know those notions of strong leadership and um maybe even values like common sense which i say in quotation marks um play into how people voted um when it came to electing the labor party like were those instances where they won because enough of the electorate thought yeah they look they look competent and trustworthy as opposed to just, I like their ideas because I suppose one of the problems the last couple of years was that people liked the ideas, but didn't necessarily trust the party to actually implement them. And didn't trust Jeremy Corbyn. So what? how how is that dynamic played out in previous elections that Labour has won?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's, it is really important that um, any party is kind of seen favourably on, on kind of competence as well as on ideas. I mean, that, mm. that does just seem to be really consistently true if you look at um, data from kind of opinion polls and on, you know, how people say they're going to vote.
2: Mm.
1: I suppose one thing that is important to um, remember is that the situation or the kind of... Um, the context in which the Labour Party was working... Between sort of um, 1945 and the mid to late 1970s was quite different from the situation that Labour has been operating in since then. Mm. In that, if you go back to those kind of immediate post war decades, it was the case that class, as measured pretty straightforwardly by um, straightforward categories like the NRS categories, so that's the A, B, C, 1, C, 2 categories that we all hear about yeah. quite a lot, um, or other mm. sociological ways of talking about class, um, you know, skilled manual, semi-skilled manual, unskilled manual, working class, those kinds of categories. They did map mm. on pretty, pretty directly onto how a lot of people were voting in those years. Um, mm. That has been decreasingly the case since the nineteen seventies. There was actually a book written about the nineteen seventies that was called Decade of Dealignment. Um and that's mm. a dealignment in class voting patterns. So economic position still almost certainly does influence the way that people vote, how people make mm. their voting decisions, but it's certainly not as straightforward anymore as it as it mm. once was. I mean it was obviously never simply the case that if you were working class if you were doing a manual job you voted labour because if that was the case then since we have had uh mass democracy in britain we would always have had uh a labour government right up until Mm. um very recently because we still do have um you know a very large proportion of the workforce doing um manual jobs and and also you know you hear a lot of talk about so-called new working class um, in, in recent decades so for example um, should people working in call centres um, be fitted into that group for the purposes of, of kind of thinking about voting because um, actually you know, in many ways their, their economic interests are ala- aligned with um, people who are working say in a factory a job that would be considered more traditionally working class by like a sort of sociologist mm. um, so Class has become much more complicated and less significant. Other things have risen up and the kind of scale to become more significant in determining how people vote since the 1970s. And that Mm -hmm. produces quite a different context for the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. If you kind of go back to the 50s, 60s, it it was more the case that um, what the Labour Party needed to do was find out where its core vote was and then go and knock on their doors, make sure that they knew there was an election coming up, um, and then on election day, make sure that they'd been and voted. Mm. And that is just not the case anymore. Labour needs to, therefore, kind of work harder and work in a, a different kind of way. Can't simply mm. rely on, there's a core base for Labour out there. We just need mm. to know which addresses they live at. Um, mm. Labour needs to kind of be... I think probably more embedded in in communities and in different types of um community organizing activism um community institutions so you know if we go back to the nineteen seventies and and even well into the nineteen eighties, working men's clubs were still incredibly popular uh vibrant uh kind of successful organizations in so many places around britain and then after the 1980s after deindustrialization really kind of um, intensified those kinds of institutions simply were not able to survive in the same way in many places uh, and you know where they have survived up to the present they're, they're so much less kind of um at the heart of, of whole communities
2: mm.
1: those places were really you know important places often where labor connections made where where kind of um labor was discussed maybe not all the time but mentioned where it was kind of um rooted into the community where people would hear about things that the labor party was doing um where labor party members would meet labor party voters Mm. if those kinds of places have have gone or have declined then labor needs to be sort of in or working to create other kinds of spaces where those Mm. sorts of things happen because we're working in a different kind of social and and kind of electoral context and that requires us to work in different ways I think.
0: Mm. I I 100% agree with you and you're right it is class is much messier now um, and I mean you know sit for hours and talk about class we don't have have that (laughs) much time but this is a um a sort of question i was just wondering how possible it would be to sort of reorient the perspective of what and who constitutes as working class because you know as as we've said so much of the political discourse over the past couple of years has been around um uh working class voters what working class voters want and when when people say that it, it is most commonly shorthand for the white working class um the older white working class, um, many of whom maybe aren't workers anymore, are retired um, or former former um, industrial workers um, and that kind of thing. But um, as we know, there are huge weights of the economy. Um, you know, younger people, um, uh, BME people, um, people in London who are very much working class with regards to their economic situation, their economic precarity in the same way that the um, the older working class who their votes favoured so much by the present Conservative Party and, you know, Trump's Republicans as well. Um, th- there is that common link of precarity, but the dividing line seems to be and you know it's it's always it, it's, it's never a good idea i suppose to make these sweeping generalizations but with regards to how polit- politics and elections have played out and um data analysis and that kind of thing it always does seem to go back to this sort of line is that the sort of sense of what kind of society those two groups of people want is relatively distant in you know young people vote certain way older people vote another way that's that's the continuing story and with 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 myself as well with regards to how difficult classes in, in an economic financial sense with regards to my family and immediate family we are stringently working class and you know growing up on in, in welfare and, and that kind of thing but culturally i rarely feel comfortable calling myself working class because it it feels it feels inaccurate in a way i don't know i, I don't know but, it's, it's, but that that's that's a sort of other thing. So do, do you think it's possible to reorient the sense of who is working class um, and sort of, as you were saying earlier, take the leadership and take the initiative and say, like, well, actually, the working class actually encompasses all these other people as well. And we are all sort of united in this sense of sort of economic precarity or is part of that disalignment um, with regard to what, people's sense of national culture and identity and etc etc is that is it is it too is it too messy and too big a divide to breach perhaps or can it be brought back together
1: yeah this is one of the kind of most important questions of of our time i think but it's also a question that has been uh a central one for for people within the labor movement for such a long time um mm. I do think that class identities have become so much more complex for exactly the reason um that you that you highlight there um over the last sort of thirty forty or so years and I do think that that does make it really difficult to see how labor can come up with a an identity and a message that is based solely on saying we are the party of the working class, we're the party of of kind of um the labour movement. Um,
2: yeah,
1: because people's um different associations with uh the idea of the working class vary so 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 much based on gender based on ethnicity, based on the place that you come from, based on education and culture, based on the place that you live now. All of those things, for so many people, make attachment to identification with class really tricky. And so people often have to tell a story about their their kind of class background and their class position now, rather than just being able to say, oh, no, I am working class, or I am middle class. Hmm. So, I think that that complexity means that that labor shouldn't simply be attempting to kind of um come up with a new uh sort of unifying sense of class because i just don't think that that's i don't think it's i think it'd be possible for um the labor party to come up with that and then sort of impose it on people or kind of try try to give that to people. Mm. I think we kind of need to work with. People as they as they actually are work with their sense of of their own identities and their own interests, and and come up with unifying senses, unifying kind of um, ideas of community or ideas of commonality uh, based on what people already think and feel. Yeah, I do think that there's a kind of. Um, I think one of the big problems that the Labour Party has had in sometimes in recent years is that people within the Labour Party or the Labour movement have kind of said, well, yeah, we need to have something to say to the working class. And as you say, that is often taken to mean the white working class in yeah. perhaps outside big cities, in towns yeah. and villages. And then that is assumed to mean the Labour Party needs to have something to say about immigration, as though that is you know, the main or the only thing that mm. that that people that those people actually care about. And I think a kind of really important... Um, I think one of the things that's really important that Labour does is to make the case that there is an economic agenda that is good for the country as a whole. I don't think that necessarily mm. has to be pitched as this is an agenda for the working class, but right. I think... I think the Labour Party, post Jeremy Corbyn, actually, you know, we really have started to develop over the last sort of four, four to five years, that economic agenda. And it's, it's kind of based around, you know, community wealth building, the cooperative movement, um, mm. taking monopolies into public ownership, democratising the economy. There's a whole load of really exciting and transformative policies that actually have been being developed over the last four or five years and that the labor party i think can and and is taking forward i think those should be absolutely at the kind of heart of what labor kind of um does and the, mm. the sort of mission that that we present to the country um over the next few years because that that economic agenda is a a unifying agenda it's an agenda about um it's it's not about immigration it's about well why do our our high streets in so many places not have loads of thriving local businesses in them Mm. and how can we make that happen again there are ways in which we can make that happen again there are ways in which we can support local businesses but also Ensure that people in a particular place have decent incomes, that they can go and spend in those shops, in those cafes, in those organisations. Make sure that they have the time to go and spend shopping and participating in, in community organisations. That, mm. I think, is um, that is the agenda that does, I think, bring the country together. Mm. It is fundamentally a kind of economic agenda. And I think it is actually more than simply a kind of an agenda that speaks to working class concerns, but it very much is focused on creating a more equal economy and society. So it's it's kind of distinctively Labour, but it does also reach beyond a a sort of... um, one any particular class interest two i think
2: Mm.
0: and ties back to the idea you mentioned earlier about how socialism and markets and absolutely don't need to be opposed Um, yeah yeah absolutely just locally driven um in this sense anyway um i mean we it's really interesting topic and we could talk about it for hours but i just have one final question sort of um unrelated to what we've already talked about but about um you know, you're a professor at UCL. Um, the government has taken a very uh, bullish, uh, belligerent um, approach towards universities in, um, uh, currently. So uh, Gavin Williamson saying that uh, universities need to prove that their courses are delivering value for money and delivering a sort of, you know, economically prepared um, workforce upon graduation. Um there's a lot of concerns about how universities will be doing financially come next term with potential drop off in international students um how to implement social distancing safely and practically um wh- what are you, wh- what are your current thoughts and feelings about everything <laughs> with, <laughs> with regards to universities at the moment mm, um sorry it's a bit of a big question <sighs>
1: First of all I'm actually a lecturer at UCL.
0: Lecturer. Um, yeah, Apologies. I mean
1: universities. Yeah, I think that the the government's kind of approach to universities has been pretty pretty rubbish and really demonstrates I think some of their kind of ideological blinkers. Yeah. They sort of want to present universities as though they want to kind of draw us into and present us as being on one side of this kind of I think, quite confected sort of culture war yeah um and <laughs> they seem really really incapable of seeing the sort of ridiculousness of some of their their sort of positions mm-hmm. um, you know they say, <laughs> we support freedom of speech unlike universities, which are supposed to be a- against freedom of speech, which is an absolute which is absolutely not the case, yeah. Um, and and the government's response to this is to say, so we're going to impose, um, you know, some kind of restrictions on what universities can and can't do and can and can't say. I mean, I'm sorry, who's on the who's on the side of freedom of speech here? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the government true, has been true. the Tories have been sort of really trying um, for many years to turn higher education into a market, and. I mean it just is so frustrating because higher education is is really really clearly not the kind of thing that it makes a lot of sense to to try and deliver in some sort of fantasy free market. Yeah, <laughs> for so many reasons. Um but I mean one thing that the government sort of has kept saying in recent years is oh isn't it terrible Universities seem to be uh, inflating grades and just giving students grades they don't deserve. Um, and, um, you know, that's that's because they, they just want to give the student, i.e. the consumer, what they want. OK, so first of all, that's not what universities are doing. We're not just giving out grades to people based on absolute nothing. Maybe, maybe if grades are, are slightly going up over time, maybe that's because... A, the students might be working harder. B, we might be, you know, teaching them better, putting more effort into ensuring that they've grasped everything, that they're able to do well. Um, so first of all, we're not doing that. But also, hang on, you want the students to be consumers in a market, but then you seem absolutely horrified by what you think that that's created. I mean, the, the government's mm-hmm. approach to universities is just just seems absolutely silly on so many levels i mean we're incredibly popular and successful and you know bit of the uk's economy really really yeah. successful at bringing in um overseas students who spend a lot of money to to come and study in british universities and spend a lot of money when they're here uh, and are you know really important great part of the economy but then the second there's a crisis the government acts like uh, This huge and really successful part of our economy, which might be in difficulty for a year or two because you know students might not want to come to a country that's handling the crisis much worse than many other countries around the world. Yeah. Oh no, but we're not gonna. We don't want to support you. We want to pretend that you are against free speech. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous, Um, and and really seems quite quite self defeating. I mean, this is a government that claims to be you know want want us to be a kind of strong well-respected country with a well-functioning economy and they just seem to be going about it in completely the wrong way you know it's just a bit of a joke really
0: thanks for listening to another episode of the social review podcast i do really hope you enjoyed it and thank you so much to uh, dr florence sutcliffe braithwaite for coming on and chatting about ideology and class and history and the conservatives and labor and all manner of things it was really interesting and i hope you enjoyed it. You can go read her article Not the End of Ideology on the Social Review website. Uh, we would really recommend going and checking that out and it was originally published in Renewal a journal for social democracy as mentioned which we would also highly recommend checking out. They publish four issues a year full of really insightful academic analysis on social democracy and politics. Um a print subscription is 30 pounds a year and a digital subscription is 20 pounds and they've got online Uh, available articles as well we'd really recommend it there are a bunch of great people as i mentioned last week uh, we are still running our listeners consultation for the podcast so if you're a fan of the podcast and you want to let us know your thoughts what you like what you would change uh, then please do go and fill out the google form it will be linked in the podcast description and also in the show description so you can copy and paste that link into your browser and fill it out it'll only take a couple of minutes and it's totally anonymous you can write whatever you like be nice otherwise have a good week and you will hear us again next week bye bye